Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedi. There was a letter posted on our message boards oh, a week or so ago mm-hmm. in response to the fact that on last week's show we had scheduled Tom Hartman, a very well-known talk show host who happens to work for Air America, and he wondered maybe we should be putting on oh Michael Savage next or Rush Limbaugh. Oh. But that's not the issue whether the person's liberal or conservative. You can't talk about UFOs. You can't talk about government conspiracies, disinformation, secret weapons, whatever without getting into politics. And so we're back on it today, and that's how it's got to be. Well, when you talk about any kind of paranormal activity of any sort, you're essentially talking about people's experiences. When you have more than two people in a room, by definition, you're dealing with politics. That's sort of the bottom line with any number of human interactions that involve things like the facts or involve things like hiding the facts, which is a... Uh, sort of a, a key issue that we constantly run into in talking about certainly UFOs. Indeed. On the Paracast, I would say that virtually every discussion we've had has been political. Okay? And if you look over the history of so called UFO secrecy, if it is, as has been claimed by a lot of people in the field, Stanton Friedman talking about the cosmic Watergate, the disclosure project with Dr. Stephen Greer, whatever you accept, you have to accept the fact that through Democratic and Republican administrations, and will be equal opportunity offenders here, as we always are, there's been UFO secrecy. They've kept the information quiet for one reason or another. Even if we talk about a secret government or an uber government that comprises the industrial complexes, the large industries around the world, whatever it is, it's all about politics, folks. Well, it certainly incorporates political elements, and sure. to try to ignore them and having any discussion about things that lie outside of the normal realm of experience, the things that we talk about on the show, it would be irresponsible. So, it, like you said, Gene, almost invariably, we keep sort of bouncing back to this idea of talking about power, and when you talk about power... There again, we pretty much have a discussion of politics. Right. And if you talk about even past civilizations, as we'll be talking about a lot of things about our early history with Paul Von Ward, author of two excellent books coming up later in the show, certainly politics enters into it. And in the second part of our show, William Burns, the co-author of Worker in the Light with George Nori, the host of Coast to Coast AM, again, it's about politics. Has to be. More coming on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 
250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. Right now, click on the C-Crane Sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. This is The Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You never know what's going to happen next. Paul Von Ward, in your book, Gods, Genes, and Consciousness, you talk about something called advanced beings. Are these extraterrestrials or what? Well, the point I'm trying to make by using the term advanced being is to make it more universal than just extraterrestrials or aliens or angels or gods. Uh, I try to address in this book the whole phenomenon of beings who are more advanced than humans uh, with whom humans have had contact and uh, by uh, which we've been influenced over the centuries, if not millennia. Uh, so I include in that term, you know, what you would call uh, extraterrestrials, uh, but also angels, uh, devils, demons, uh, ascended uh, masters, beings and inhabiting other dimensions. The, the gods of the Old Testament, I mean, you read uh, the stories of the Elohim, that's a plural word for meaning the gods who intervened genetically in the early days of humanity. Uh, it refers to Yahweh, who uh, was a, an unseen being, but who allegedly, uh, you know, gave information to Moses and directed uh, his uh, travels with the Hebrews. Gabriel, who uh, allegedly is uh, an advanced being that uh, gave the Quran to Muhammad. Uh, Moroni, another advanced being who allegedly gave the founder of the modern Mormon church. All of these are beings more advanced than humans, uh, and uh, some of them are talked about in flesh and terms, like uh, in the Old Testament, walking together with uh, Abraham and uh, others of the patriarchs, sleeping with the daughters of men and creating uh, the giants of old. Uh, these are references to actual physical uh, contacts and physical beings while Yahweh and Gabriel and Moroni appear to be more other-dimensional. On the PowerCast, we're talking to Paul Von Ward. He's author of such works as Our Solarian Legacy, subtitled Multidimensional Humans in a Self-Learning Universe, and also a book that I've been reading right now called God's Genes and Consciousness about non-human intervention in human history. So from what you're telling us here, these advanced beings come from different sources then. That's exactly right. Uh, the hypothesis is, and uh, I think there's a lot of evidence to support it, that uh, we humans live in a universe that's inhabited by uh, a large variety of species, both in our 3D time space and uh, species who operate in other dimensions, uh, the dimensions that are speculated about by string theorists and 
in modern physics. Mm. Now, Paul, let me ask you a question. The problem, of course, for example, the realm of string theory, we have a very probable but yet very theoretical construct of a multidimensional universe. How do we help people who are not familiar with the notion of a multiverse understand what on the outside almost seems fantastic or impossible? Well, there are a number of ways that you can get at this. One, of course, is the work that's done at the Monroe Institute where people learn to get both hemispheres of their brain in sync and are able to move and travel and communicate at higher dimensions. Uh, the reports of people who uh, have met other dimensions at these higher levels, that is, a, that is an example of another dimension and other beings operating in that uh, dimension. The, the remote viewing that the U.S. government uh, has done over the years and the Department of uh, Defense and the CIA projects that we've read about in so many different uh, accounts uh, in the recent years, many of these remote viewers reported that when they were traveling outside of their own uh, bodies looking for information from another area on the planet, they encountered uh, other beings uh, mm -hmm. transversing uh, the same space. So these are practical, uh, concrete examples of these other dimensions that string theorists, you know, only speculate about. The whole business of, of an out-of-body experience, where does that consciousness of the human go after an accident or an on-the-surgery uh, uh, table kind of death? and still be able to look back and to observe us in this space-time. To me, that's a, that's a good example of uh, how one of these dimensions uh, works. How do dreams fit into that construct of the universe? Well, uh, dreams, from my point of view, are uh, only um, extensions of our own uh, individual foci of consciousness into the larger sphere of universal consciousness, and uh, that's when we are, uh, you know, sending out our own emanations, our own signals into this new sphere, as uh, Teilhard de Chardin called it, or, or the collective consciousness that Jung called it. Uh, dreaming is a two-way street. It's like all communications. The whole point being that all communications are two-way, uh, from one dimension to another or within dimensions. Uh, when you and I are communicating here through uh, cyberspace uh, and electromagnetic space, uh, I'm sending signals and you're receiving them and vice versa. When we're dreaming at night, I'm sending out into the new sphere of the collective unconscious the thoughts and feelings and, and uh, activities of my local mind, and it receives similar emanations from other locations, from other people, from other beings that we receive. So uh, our dreams are a combination of both just passively opening ourselves up to the signals, the what I call the subtle signals uh, from other beings, other locations, uh, and uh, also they are stimulated by our own active thoughts. I mean, the example being, you know, we have heard so many people talk about the fact that they had a problem to solve, and they had that on their mind and went to sleep and had a dream and received information to solve the problem. This is an example of the active search mode. Uh, it's like sending out our radar signals or our sonar signals from submarines uh, to uh, see what they hit and to get a response. So in our technological 
fear today, we have metaphors for dream work, for out-of-body experience, for remote viewing and astral travel and that sort of thing. This is a good example. <laughs> We're losing it in the, uh, <laughs> the haze of our electronic communications. And this is why things are so fuzzy uh, in the dream world and also in terms of uh, precognition and uh, telepathy and uh, psychokinetic efforts to use our subtle energies. They do get dissipated and distorted, just like our communications uh, get distorted in this uh, communication that we're having. Mm-hmm. So that's why we can't have, you know, a perfect, pristine picture of external reality through our inner senses. There, there are these distortions. That's why precognitive experiences where we think we are uh, seeing uh, the probabilities of something happening in the future, uh, we're seeing only probabilities projected from, you know, the current moment. And, of course, there's a lot of uh, static in between what we're seeing and uh, where we are at this point in time. And, of course, decisions made by various people can, can make a change in those trajectories. So what we prophesy is only, even with the best psychics, only about two-thirds uh, accurate. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking to Paul Von Ward. He is the author of such books as God, Genes, and Consciousness, and Our Solarian Legacy. If you want to contact us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. They could be written messages or short audio clips of up to 90 seconds in MP3 format, and visit our website at theparacast.com to download previous episodes and visit our message boards. So, Paul, what I'm seeing here is, let's go back to the dream state for a moment here. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people involved in modern science would say that when we dream about other things or we dream of answers, we're really calling upon our own subconscious mind that we're not interacting with external forces. So obviously they believe one way and you're positing another way. So what evidence is there that we are in contact in our dream state with external forces, entities, whatever? Well, uh, the one example I mentioned earlier is when people are attempting to solve a problem that they have not been able to discover the answer to and uh, have no way of knowing what the answer is and uh, in dream work are able to tap into uh, knowledge and information that uh, is possessed by other people, other beings, and it uh, solves their problem. So this is a very practical example of reaching beyond ourselves. Uh, Also, in many uh, lucid dreams and and dreams that are not lucid, uh, there's not much distinction between a lucid dream and and remote viewing or telepathic viewing of, of other beings or other places on the planet. I mean, the work that the DOD and CIA has done that I mentioned earlier on remote viewing, a part of our mind can reach out and actually receive images of another location uh, around the planet. Uh, And in many instances in these experiments, the viewer doesn't even know 
where he's looking uh, for this information from. All he has is a couple of coordinates. And so to say that it all came out of his mind or her mind is uh, false because in his or her mind there was absolutely no information about that site which he or she can then sit down and draw sketches of which proved to be reliable uh, sketches and pictures of a place halfway around the globe. In a recent episode of the PowerCast, we talked to Paul Smith. Do you know him? Uh, I don't know him personally, but I know of him, yes. Okay. So, very personable fellow. And he talked about remote viewing and about his work for the government. And the thing he said that kind of put a bit of a kibosh on the technology is the fact that it's not perfect. You know, it's not like taking a video camera and looking into another place. There's a subjective factor. The information is not always 100% reliable. And this made it, you know, really difficult for the government investigators to really harness this technology for spying where every piece of information has to be 100% or you just get things messed up. Well, I would disagree uh, with uh, concluding that because it's not perfect, it's not useful. Uh, I think it's been proven over and over again that uh, the information that is provided, while not uh, 100% definitive, certainly points us in directions that we might not have been aware of before. It helps us to uh, have a hypothesis that we didn't have before that we can test out through other means. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, research has been done on uh, the uh, prophecies of psychics. Even the best, it's only about two-thirds accurate. So you can't say just because a psychic said it, this is the situation, this is what will occur. But what you can say is that about two-thirds of the time something valid and usable is being given to us as information. Therefore, we don't make a life and death decision based on it, but it's helpful information and knowledge uh, in terms of making a decision when we bring in uh, intelligence and information from other sources. So, I mean, I have to agree with Paul on that. Uh, You know, it's not a perfect tool, but with training, people do get more and more uh, accurate, and also using a team approach increases the accuracy uh, considerably. I've done workshops with people on remote viewing, uh, had a target uh, for this group effort, and no one person in the in the group could sketch out the target with a great deal of accuracy. Well, when we have a mosaic of the different pictures from all the people in the group, we have something that's very close to what the actual target was. So when you have a team effort with different team providing their details to a composite picture, then it's even more accurate. And so what I'm suggesting is that surely at this point in time, the use of our subtle energies and subtle senses, whether they are in telepathy, remote viewing, precognition, PK exercises, regardless of which of those modes is being used, it's not perfect, but it is much more than having no information of that sort. And so I'm encouraging people to practice on it themselves, you know, to start paying attention to the hits that they get uh, of a deja vu nature, you know, of a, of a telepathic sense, and paying attention to those communications, those images, those hits, as we call them, happen, 
and you get better at it. That makes a lot of sense, Paul, because essentially no technology is completely foolproof. Microcomputers that we've come to rely on so much crash all the time. So out goes the, the perfection of that technology. I like the idea of fuzzy logic. You know, fuzzy logic in computers, well, we have fuzzy reception and uh, transmission in our subtle senses. It, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, nothing is, is, is 100%. I'd like, like to ask you a question about something you put forward in our Solarian Legacy, which I think, by the way, is an, a very well-written book and absolutely fascinating. In that Thank book, you. You, well, that you're very welcome. But here's the question I'd like to ask. In that book, you put forward that we can understand a lot about human motivation and human nature by looking at the overall universe. That if we assume that the universe has this trajectory, this agenda of self-awareness and of determination, that this would then help us understand the self-determination and awareness of human beings. But that said, if we look today at what seems to be the most predominant aspect of humanity emerging in today's global situation, which primarily, unfortunately, appear to be greed and fear. Do we then trace that back to the origins of the universe? How do we reconcile the greed and fear that seem to control so much human activity with the motivation of the universe itself? Is the universe greedy and fearful, Paul? Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. If you want to contact us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. We'll even take audio messages of up to 90 seconds in MP3 format. Visit our website, theparacast.com, and you can check out our message boards or download past episodes of the show. We're talking to Paul Von Ward, who is the author of two excellent books that David and I have been reading. I've been reading God's Genes and Consciousness, and David has been reading our Solarian legacy, and he asked Paul a very important question, and now let's wait for the answer. All right, let's uh, respond. You have to think for a moment about individual local judgments and perceptions of things that we call good and evil, positive, negative, right and wrong, and understand that those are only uh, limited perceptions of some polarities of activity, our behaviors, our beliefs, and understand that from the universe's point of view, which as I try to describe it, uh, we have a self-learning universe. In other words, the creative force of the origins of all that is, whatever you want to call it, the source, the creator, Atman, you pick your term. The evidence that I think we can look at in the universe of how all species behave uh, from the one-celled uh, bacteria right on up 
uh, to the behavior of viruses that adapt and learn how to circumvent uh, our antibiotics, the species who learn to adapt to changing environmental conditions. When you look at the nature of solar systems and galaxies and the way the whole phenomena of black holes and white holes of creation and destruction and, and expansion and uh, contraction and all of these factors that are at work, mm-hmm. what you see as a universe that is engaged in an open-ended process of trying out all of its capabilities, testing them out, experimenting with them, learning what works. Uh, what doesn't work falls by the wayside. What works gets perpetuated. It's sort of the Darwinian theory of <laughs> evolution at a cosmic scale, although it's, I hesitate to use that parallel but uh, because it's not exactly Darwinian, uh, but it is a, it's a process of continual evolving uh, testing and learning what works and what doesn't and of making adapt, adaptations. So what you've talked about is a current moment in the history of one species, human beings, sapiens on this planet, who are engaged in a huge process of self-learning, trying to figure out what it takes for this conscious species called Homo sapiens to live together in harmony with one another and in harmony with the ecosystem of our planet and our solar system. I say, in that process, you're going to have all kinds of activities and behaviors that at the moment seem to be terrible and how could they be permitted in a universe that has any order and purpose to it. They are teaching us lessons about how not to behave. (laughs) Uh, We have people who are fumbling around and trying out all sorts of ideas and uh, they're screwing up the, the environment that we live in, they're screwing up the societies we have, and yet they and we are all learning from this process. And if we don't learn as a species, you know, we end our part of the experiment, but the universe as a whole continues on its process of self-learning, and other species will fill in the gap. Okay, going along that thread of logic, let's say there is a planet revolving around a star, and that planet has a species that is learning by leaps and bounds that's making incredible gains, and all of a sudden that star goes supernova and that planet is destroyed. Let's make believe I'm looking at this from the outside. What then do I assume the universe has learned? What was the the benefit of having that self-aware society that goes down in the blaze of a star imploding on itself? Now we know that that process of going supernova creates new heavy elements that essentially are the building blocks of life. But let's say that the species that was on that planet that revolved around that star was on some great brink. The star goes nova. The planet's gone. Help me find the logic in that, Paul. Well, the the logic is that in such a complex uh, planet with billions and billions of conscious species, in order for there to be total freedom to learn and experiment in this uh, universal organism that we're all a part of, there have to be things like accidents, there have to be things like uh, chance, there have to be things like uh, mistakes, there have to be entropy. Basically, like, you're saying ent- ent- entropy, in other words. Well, entropy is an example of that. Part of it runs down, 
And when it runs down to a certain point, then it uh, dissolves in a black hole and starts over again. So, so at a physical, biological, physics level, it seems to me that even on our planet, while it is a beautiful, pristine place in which to live, there may have been a mountain slide that wiped out a whole village of the most peaceful humans on planet Earth. And you say, what is the logic in that? And I would say, the logic is, you know, there are accidents that happen. Uh, people are in the wrong place at the wrong time. This is a part of the learning process. If it were predetermined by some God, as fundamentalist Christians would have us to believe, uh, where everything is predetermined is going to happen exactly as God would have it happen, then there's no learning. Now, there's no learning by the individuals, and there's no learning by the universe as a whole. So my view is that the universe uh, is big enough, and the vision and purposefulness is expansive enough, that there's room for all kinds of uh, glitches to occur, and part of the game that we're all involved in is being willing to take the risk. So that's on a physical level. Now, I would add that at the level of consciousness, at the level of non-physical reality where we've been talking earlier about the ways in which we have evidence that consciousness does survive and act and interact at that other dimensional level, those people on that planet that uh, was engulfed by a star-going supernova could very well uh, have, at another dimension, learned some lessons from what they were doing, survived and passed on to uh, other species in the form of reincarnation. My own view is that reincarnation is the universe's way of conserving knowledge gained by an individual uh, or as a species as a whole, uh, in that it is passed on through the process of successive incarnations, uh, building up, accumulating knowledge that then feeds into the next uh, cycle of time and space on a particular planet. So the individual notion of reincarnation, uh, from my point of view, uh, as we popularly think about it, also exists at the species level. At the species level, something I've always wondered about in terms of reincarnation, is there a possibility, if we assume that there are many sentient beings or intelligent civilizations throughout even our galaxy, is there some way to draw a line to say that reincarnation only occurs within a species, or is it possible for there to be reincarnation between two different planetary species? I know that sounds a little out there, but I I'm wondering, is that a possibility? In other words, well, David, can you be reincarnated as a duck? But before we get the answer... <laughs> <laughs> well, no, not as a duck, as, a, as another intelligent being as on a, another as a planet. Being. Assuming and, ducks and aren't intelligent. No, I'm just joking here, guys, but we're going to have the answer to that question, serious answer in a moment. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Yetney, and we're talking to Paul Von Ward. He's author of Our Solarian Legacy and God's Genes and Consciousness, works like that. And I would remind you, if you want to reach us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. If you pop into our website, theparacast.com, you can download back episodes or visit our message boards. And now I just made a silly crack there, and that's as close to humor as I can get as David reminds me over and over again. So let's have a serious answer. 
Well, the serious answer is um, ducks are intelligent as well. I make that as just a tiny rejoinder. Uh, all uh, sentient species, all species are conscious and have some level of conscious awareness. Now, I think that the evidence that we have about reincarnation uh, is that most of it occurs within a species because it takes a long time to learn uh, through successive incarnations as much as a being can learn in a particular trajectory of learning learning and research that that is being engaged in by this soul i'll use the word soul it, it can be a we can use the term transcendent being or foci of consciousness but it all amounts to the same thing in a conscious universe that is based on the substratum of consciousness from which arises your subtle energies and then your electromagnetic spectrum energies and so on this consciousness is universal and only becomes specific when it coheres in, in, in a manner somewhat akin to lasers, when it coheres and therefore in its act of coherence uh, manifests as a physical being, as a physical entity. And so there's no reason why that consciousness, uh, when it's not incarnated in a particular 3D being, could be incarnated in other species, even in other systems. Uh, and there are many anecdotal stories that suggest this may very well have happened. A number of people who've had uh, contact with uh, ABs, either in abduction or contact experiences, uh, have come back reporting that they uh, spoke with someone from another star system who told them of the experiences of being incarnated as humans or formerly humans are now in this other star system. There's a good bit of channel material on this. I don't think that we have a great deal of scientific evidence that the mainstream community would take seriously at this point, but I think there's enough to suggest that, uh, and I've talked to a number of people who have related to me their own past life experiences uh, in other planetary systems before becoming a human. And there are several books. Dolores Cannon has uh, some books out giving case studies of people who have had that experience. And I have a very close and intimate friend who uh, tells a story of having arrived here from another planet and incarnated in this body. So I think the notion of interspecies reincarnation is certainly plausible. And uh, it's known back from the ancient times of uh, early Hindus um, the term used to describe that was transmigration, and uh, that means simply movement being, uh, between and among species. So that lets your duck point <laughs> fit into that bigger picture. Well, of course, in the movie Howard the Duck, he was an intelligent duck, right? Oh, no, don't even go there, Gene. I won't. Gene, I won't. Let's, keep this, let's keep this a serious conversation. Well, I want to talk seriously about the advanced beings, okay, because we touched on early in the show, and I wanted to move back on it. There's so much ground to cover, ladies and gentlemen. I have to tell you right now that we're going to have Paul come back in the future to talk more about these subjects. But let's talk about the advanced beings, okay? Now... Are these beings who just visited us, interacted with us, or were they, as some say, responsible for seeding us? Are we their descendants? Well, that's the whole story. In other words, as I tried to articulate early on, the notion that the category that I call advanced beings could be any one of those different examples that you gave. Right. Now, in the, in the book, God's Genes and Consciousness, I do... 
focus on the intervention of a species that some people know as the uh, Anunnaki uh, from the work of Zachari- Zachariah Sitchin. He uses that term. Uh, in the Bible, it's known as the Anakim. Uh, other sources have it with different names. But essentially, the universal story is not just in Western religions, but also in the traditions of, of people on every continent, is that there were some advanced beings who came to Earth early on in human history and uh, manipulated them in some way that uh, led to the arising of civilizations at a higher level than humans had experienced before. The stories are very uh, many and universal to the effect that these advanced beings gave humans uh, certain scientific information, gave them language, uh, gave them uh, the alphabets. For example, the oldest alphabet on the planet is Sanskrit. Uh, Sanskrit by itself means uh, uh, the perfect system, meaning that it was given to humans by an advanced being called Sarasvati as a complete system of writing. Now, the word Devanagari, which is the script that's used in Sanskrit, itself means uh, the writing of the gods. So when you look at that, and these stories are not the only ones. Uh, The Egyptians said that God Toth gave them their system of writing. The uh, uh, Sumerians uh, reported that their writing systems were from the gods, and on and on. It's it's, it's, uh, repeated many, many times in the anthropological literature. Okay, and this seems to speak of the same kind of beings in almost every case. The universal nature of these contacts from religion to religion, from history to history, this this same kind of being or entity. Were they humans like us, only a bit more advanced, or what? Well, I would say, I wouldn't say necessarily humans like us, but they were certainly uh, what we might call humanoid in the sense that they are not dislike us, too unlike us. My hypothesis that I set forth in the book God's Genes and Consciousness is that uh, humans were naturally evolving on this planet uh, through the primate stage and probably somewhere back there in what we know as the Homo erectus era up to about half a million years ago. Humans were on a particular path of development, and there was an intervention by a particular group of advanced beings who then did some genetic manipulation that resulted in the first uh, Homo sapiens. And I think uh, later on, there was actually direct uh, sexual mixing of the genes, uh, which is described in the Bible and other texts, that resulted human beings, the modern human being, uh, that we know as Homo sapiens sapiens. So uh, I think that that's a story that we really ought to spend a lot of time and energy developing the evidence and, and assessing it, because I think that's essentially a central human story that we've had suppressed and that's largely forgotten at this point. Well, I, at first I started out by looking at the sacred text of, of all the traditions and, and found this story. But I wanted to compare that with other areas of evidence. I looked into the fossil record and have a timeline that shows in which this intervention by advanced beings uh, most likely occurred. The linguists uh, today who have tried to project backwards in history 
the timeline for the development of various human languages and the families of languages that we have today, it suggests a correspondence between this story from the sacred text that humans had received language, had received gifts of civilization, sciences, architecture, other things uh, from these advanced beings. So the fossil record is parallel with that. The language record, the, the linguists, are parallel with that. Uh, also, I looked at the phylogenetic tree research. This is where geneticists today take uh, the differences among various groups of people and project backwards to try to have a timeline for when they uh, separated from one uh, race to another, group to another. And the timeline on that also corresponds with these uh, traditions from the ancient text. So what I'm suggesting is that there are several areas of evidence that point to this story of this intervention, direct intervention in human history, that we ought to much more widely known, and we ought to invite uh, scholars and scientists to look at this hypothesis very seriously. Uh, that's what I'm trying to do in that book. Uh, I haven't had a great rush of university research departments coming to me and saying, we'd like to do this kind of research, but I think uh, in not too distant future, we will have that sort of response. The, the evidence is there that uh, there was this intervention. And uh, people who are truly scientists who really want to find the answers to these questions of human origins and how we reach the divided, fragmented world that we're in today will look back at this. And uh, I think will give us a clear understanding of how the religions and cultures that are so uh, divisive today uh, came as a result of humans misinterpreting and misusing this story of advanced being intervention in human history. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, $19.95 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next.
You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. If you want to contact us, send your messages to news at thepowercast.com. Visit our website. You're invited, thepowercast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show. Of course, you can do that from iTunes as well. And you can visit our message forums at thepowercast.com. We are happy to talk here to Paul Von Ward. He is author of such books as Our Solarian Legacy, God's Genes and Consciousness, and ladies gentlemen i have to tell you right now and we got a letter from somebody who says we use the word i have to tell you too often so i'm going to use it <laughs> anyway actually they said david uses it too often but i have yeah. to tell you ladies and gentlemen these are enjoyable books i've spent most of my time with the more recent one god's genes and consciousness a scholarly work calm well presented well written and a lot of compelling information and i I'm going to use my very limited telepathic powers and determine that I believe David has a question. Is that correct, sir? You're <laughs> right on the money, Gene. Paul. <laughs> I love the way these subtle energies work here. <laughs> it's something that we've practiced for many years and completely failed at. <laughs> no, we're just, we're just winging it, actually. That's the truth. So, Paul, on this show, we talk a lot about UFOs and UFO activity. One of the things I think a lot of our listeners do believe at this point is that our government knows some good amount of information about the source of UFOs, that perhaps they've been able to have some form of communication with the beings in these things. And this has all been kept secret from society for the most part, though it's starting to leak out in little dribs and drabs. Is the reason for that that our government has determined that indeed these beings has have had intervention in our society, in our genetics in the past, and they're afraid that if people find this out, it's going to shatter things like religious institutions and existing belief systems? I think that's exactly and precisely to be redundant, the answer. You see, we talk about the government cover-up as if it were something uh, recent, since 1947 or 1952, but that's not the case. You see, this uh, cover-up and distortion actually started more than 2,000 years ago. After the direct intervention, uh, after the time of the gods, where even up to uh, the classic period in Greece, about uh, three, four, five hundred B.C., even at that time, they were still talking about the gods and these advanced beings in natural, straightforward terms. You know, there was no note they were supernatural or off in some heaven or in some divine realm. They were talked about as, as real beings. But as the cults of that time, uh, all of the cults that were worshipping one or the other of these advanced beings who had shown his or her face on the earth, like uh, Osiris or Isis in Egypt, like Yahweh uh, to the Hebrews, like Baal to the Babylonians, and so on. Uh, they were all uh, focusing in their particular cults on that particular god. Now, the, the gods apparently pulled away, pulled away about 4,000 years ago, 3,500 years ago for sure, because that's the time that Yahweh started speaking to Moses and the Hebrews, and at that point, he was an unseen God. These advanced beings were no longer specifically and physically involved in human affairs, so they were operating from, a, from something of a distance. And what happened is as people, political leaders and religious leaders, uh, began to try to bring together 
a coalescence of some of these cults to make them into large political forces that could rule a significant area on the planet. You had the transformation of the reality of these advanced beings into supernatural beings. So by the time of Jesus, about 2,000 years ago, they had already, uh, most not just the Hebrews, but the others, the other cults of that time, had already uh, started to develop the notion that these gods of old were really uh, divine beings, and they were sort of imaginary beings. So by 325 A.D., when you had Constantine, the uh, new to be emperor of Rome, pulling together the Nicene Council, the supernaturalization of these natural phenomena had largely taken place so that then people were arguing about whether their god was the god of the universe, the creator of the universe. And uh, what happened is Constantine pulled together a lot of disparate uh, religious groups, churches, and synods, as they were in those days, and developed a story together in this collective council that uh, uh, said, we have the one God of the universe. And this one God of the universe showed himself uh, in one man, which was something that, you know, uh, is certainly disputable, but created then the Christian religion based on this notion that their particular vision of God, their particular vision of an advanced being, was really the real creator of the universe. And what made it work is it combined the military and political power of the declining Roman Empire uh, with this large cult following. And by making the rituals and the belief systems compatible with, with so many of the cults at that time, the new Christian church was able to pull members from all uh, sorts of cults. And so it became a very dominant supernatural point of view uh, backed up by the military might of the Roman Empire, what was left of it, and the new Christian armies that the uh, new empire uh, leaders, in terms of Constantine on down to uh, Augustus uh, a couple hundred years later, manipulating this belief system, covering up the real history for political and economic purposes. And, of course, our governments today descended directly from that tradition. We had the uh, divine rights in all of Europe, and uh, of course we in America uh, fought a battle to free ourselves of the divine rights of kings, which came from this tradition, which was covering up all this history. And initially, we in this country were able to uh, talk about religion in in natural terms. Uh, Madison and Jefferson and uh, others at the time certainly uh, talked about. Uh, these religions in natural terms. They were belief systems. They had nothing to do with the divine creator uh, himself, uh, and they were uh, different belief systems of different groups of people. Now, what's happened in the intervening years is that our government has become uh, more and more, uh, again, like the European governments that, drew, that grew out of this uh, religious tradition covering up the story, and it has now itself become the letter of the suppression and the cover-up that started uh, back almost 2,000 years ago. I realize that's a long answer, but what I'm saying is that's the context. And so it's not, if, if, if there had been a sighting of three UFOs or there were 25 beings that had been found dead somewhere, the government could talk about this uh, without a serious problem. But it cannot talk about these things 
because of the historical antecedents and the whole set of institutions and belief systems would come uh, tumbling down at our feet. In other words, the very power on which the basic institutions of our society rest is this uh, distorted story of human history. But at this point, can we assume that there is some possibility, some potential of truth emerging and these institutions falling because the planet can't support the, the goals and the agendas of these institutions? The testing of the AB intervention hypothesis, our testing of the alien intervention hypothesis, there are more and more people uh, doing research that's making the case stronger and stronger that this story has been suppressed and it needs to come out. I don't pretend that my book is the perfect uh, account of that story, and I don't think the other book out there is either, but I think a lot of us are trying to put that together in its total form, you see, not just focusing on the modern MJ-12 cover-up, because MJ-12 is just a manifestation of this centuries-old group of people who wanted to make sure the story didn't come out. The abductions and contacts that people are reporting today are different than the contacts that humans had that formed Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and other religions. So uh, if we admit that these things are happening and some of the same kinds of information, some of the same kinds of experiences are occurring, uh, we would have to say, well, gee, that's what happened uh, in the origins of our religions. And that's why people don't want to sit down and talk about finding the truth about the origins of our various religions, because the truth would undermine, you know, the current supernaturalism that gives power to people who uh, serve as the leaders of, of, of the various groups, the various cults, uh, the leader, the minister, the, the president, the whatever his position might be, says, you know, I am speaking for the true God, and there are all those people out there who say, okay, whatever you say is what that true God wants. And uh, we are in that situation today. The only way to get out of it, in my view, is to uncover this whole business of the human creation of God and the religions, rather than the notion that it was something given to us by some divine creator. I think that's going to have to be about it for this episode. You know, you've basically given us so much ammunition for further questions, the ramifications of all this, and certainly I wanted to focus also on some of the more modern instances of possible interaction with advanced beings such as UFOs and such. So let me say the books involved, the ones that we heartily recommend, David and I, the Our Solarian Legacy, also God's Genes and Consciousness, and these are well-written, well-edited books from Hampton Roads Publishing. And we have more information about the books at our site, the paracast.com. To Paul Von Ward, I hope this is the first of many discussions we'll have because we are really, really fascinated by what you had to say today. Well, thanks, thanks for joining us on the Paracast. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you, Paul.
She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack, Attack of the, the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story. And the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www.rockoids.com. Attack of the Rockoids in the grand and science fiction tradition. This is the Tech Night Owl Live with Gene Steinberg, going where no tech show has gone before. Well, that was one of the most intelligent guests we've probably ever had on the show. Indeed, his books are fascinating, and I can't wait to finish both of them. Yeah, they're really well written, and they offer a synthesis of different disciplines that I find is a very compelling read. You know, it's kind of like the history of everything. Right, and I think we need that, some way to focus on the overall picture. And coming up next, we're going to get another slant on how the overall picture shapes up on a more recent vein, coming with Bill Burns. Bill, of course, is the publisher of UFO Magazine, but he also worked with Coast to Coast AM's George Norrie on a new book called Worker in the Light, coming up next on the Paracast. to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and tune in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We're back with part two of the Paracast. Coming up next is Bill Burns. He is the co-author, along with George Norrie of Coast to Coast AM, of Worker in the Light. This is going to be a fascinating discussion on the Paracast. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. You're in the paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bandy. You never know what's going to happen next.
So, Bill Burns, what is The Worker in the Light? Well, Worker in the Light is a new book that George Nori and I wrote, and it's all about, the easy answer is it's all about human empowerment. But really, the book is about using a sense, just like one of your five senses, using a sense that everyone has, every human being has, but most human beings don't know how to use, and worse, from a conspiracy angle, I'm here to tell you that this is a sense that government and industry and all those really bad people that we always talk about every day train people not to use by grinding it out of us, by distracting us with other things. And so Work With The Light says, here's how to use that sense, everybody. Here's how to use it in a way that allows you to tell the future and to control the future, control, use your intention to control future events. It's an amazing, amazing book based on scientific evidence that I'd love to talk about. All right. We're talking to William Burns, co-author of Worker in the Light with George Norrie. And we all know George Norrie from Coast to Coast AM, which is heard on 500 radio stations, but not this one. <laughs> and you're in the Paracast. Let's talk about all this stuff here, all this powerful stuff they don't want us to know about. And I'm reading the summary here where it says, Nori truly believes that there are forces, both good and evil, at work on Earth, forces that can be harnessed by human beings. So how do you know when you're dealing with these forces that you're not getting the bad guys? It's interesting uh, that you say that. Um, my own working definition, and one of the things that we um, try to point out in the book, is that you know when you are dealing with evil forces, not because it's a monster. You know, you see the movies like Damien 3 and all these movies where you've got the satanic character with the funky eyes and the funny eyeballs saying this kind of like pig Latin stuff, and that's how you know it's a monster. Well, what if I said to you that a monster can look just like anybody else, no, no horns, no tail, no pitchfork, no big ugly face, no drool spilling out of its mouth, no foam. What if the definition of evil, of an evil person, is an individual who gets you to do evil, brings you to your lowest level, makes you do things that operate not just against your best interest, but operate in a way that you know is wrong. And if that's evil, that's what's going on on the dark side. And uh, there is a whole body of literature and myth story dealing with what goes on on the dark side to warn people. And what the scientists, and this is science now, what the scientists found out is that when they were sending remote viewers, the U.S. Army remote viewers going out to find people to see where they are, to set them up for assassination, that there were individuals who were rebelling against this because they were using something essentially very good, using a good sense to do something very evil. And it drove some people out and out straight out insane. Oh, boy. <laughs> so is this a matter of, therefore, if you feel in your gut that something is wrong, it is wrong, they can't fool you? Exactly. If you and your gut 
you know. I mean, the whole premise of the book is that this is not how to find something outside of yourself. It is how to recognize something inside of yourself. And some of the points about this whole field are really staggering. In other words, you don't have to acquire a sixth sense gene, Dave. You have to learn how to see what you're already seeing. You know what's right and wrong. You don't need to listen to sermons from the clergy every weekend. You don't need to do that. We know what's right and wrong. We know that because the Bible has even pointed out from the very first moments of human creation, this is really key, in the very first moments of human creation, whether you see the story of Genesis in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, as a, a metaphor for aliens coming to Earth and planting the seed of, of, of humanity on Earth, or whether you take a literal read of Genesis, or whether you see it as a piece of literature trying to explain something that was evolution over a period of, of millions of years, no matter what, one statement in Genesis stands out, and that is that without having been told anything, when God, like when Hashem, comes to the Garden of Eden and the Lord is standing there in person looking for Adam, and he calls out to Adam in the summer evening, right? Remember, because Adam, where are you? And Adam goes, here I am, Hineni, here I am. I'm here, and the Lord says, well, why are you hiding? Why don't you step out? And Adam says, because we are naked. And at the moment he says that, obviously, the Lord says, how do you know you're naked? In other words, how do you have that knowledge that you are less than innocent, that you've done something evil? And in that moment, that's the whole, that, that in one sentence, explains exactly what I'm talking about. It explains exactly how human beings already know the difference between the light side and the dark side. They already know the difference between good and evil. It's not a question of learning it. It's a question of listening to it. And that one statement resonates throughout Work with the Light. Not that it's a religious book, because it's not. But it's about sensory perception that we already have. All of these things, of course, are filtered through the human psyche, which is so severely and deeply affected by its surroundings. So is there a way to say, I mean, when people talk about good and evil, in objective terms, it's always occurred to me that if you're an animal that's being eaten by another animal, from the point of view of the, the predator, this death is a positive thing. It's survival. From the point of view of the animal being eaten, is it a good thing? They're being killed. They're being eaten. It, at that point, how do you create sort of a moral reference for what is good and what is evil? Good question. Let's start at the baseline. Why are you attributing a moral reference to animals? The whole difference between human beings and animals, we assume, is that human beings do have a moral sense. I mean, you train a dog, right? You train a dog not to make inside the house. You housebreak a dog. Mm -hmm. you, tra you train a cat to use a litter box, correct? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, normally, and, and a, a cat or a bird or a dog, they, they, you know, for them, it's no big deal. You know, go here, go there. What do I care? The point is you've got to train them. You impose that. The difference is that um, you would say human beings learn to be socialized, 
but I would go beyond it and say human beings have a sense, almost an innate sense, I would agree with you that it's culturally defined, okay? I would agree mm-hmm. that, that, uh, uh, that different cultures manifest that good and evil in different ways. But at the same time, I'd say there is nevertheless a sense of good and evil that human beings have. Human beings don't kill each other unless something is wrong. We train human beings to kill, but you can't kill in self-defense. You can't kill to preserve your own life. Right. But I'm saying that, that at a baseline, I don't think that you can attribute, um, let's call it moral awareness, to animals uh, the same way you can to humans. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. If you want to contact us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. We take written messages or audio messages in MP3 format of up to 90 seconds. And our website, theparacast.com, is a repository for past episodes of the show or to participate in our message forums. And we bring back today an old friend of ours. And other than William Burns, who amongst his other pursuits, of course, is the publisher of UFO magazine and is author, along with George Norrie, of Worker in the Light, subtitled Unlock Your Five Senses and Liberate Your Limitless Potential. Okay, Bill, we know you've been involved in a lot of the stuff for many years. How did George Norrie get involved? Well, George tells this great story in the book that when he was 11 years old, he was having a nap in the afternoon. I, th- I think he was, had a cold or something. And uh, he kind of, he never went to sleep, but he was thinking about flying. And suddenly, without having the experience of leaving his body, he looked down and saw his body. And he was on, his, his, his vision was from the ceiling down to his body. He looked down, saw his body, and... In out of moment, body, then, yeah. He had an out-of-body experience, and in that moment of realization that I should not be seeing this, he, had, he immediately perceived that he was slamming back into his own body. So he didn't perceive himself leaving his body, but he perceived himself slamming into his body. And he said that to him was really kind of, um, that was an experience that is defining in terms of your perception. He knew at that moment there was another side to reality, not an alternate reality, but another side to reality. And he said that privately in his own mind, he went on a quest to find out what the meaning of that reality was. And one of the people that he spoke to, that he asked, was a relative of his, kind of a great aunt or a cousin. He was never quite sure what the relationship was to his father's side of the family, but a very famous a neuropsychiatrist called Dr. Shafika Karagula or Caragula, depending on how you pronounce her name. And uh, she was very famous. She was, uh, she was a friend of the uh, also celebrated Ingo Swan from the Army's remote viewing program. And Caragula helped define New Age in California in the late 1950s into the early 60s. And she really encouraged George, look, explore this. See where this takes you. Don't be afraid of it. Don't deny it. And of course, while she was telling this to George, she had begun her own private studies of Edgar Casey and how Edgar Casey was able literally to remote view. And 
and uh, she was also working with um, a very famous uh, psychiatrist in Montreal called Dr. Wilder Penfield. Now, his name might not mean anything to anybody today, but if I mention the two books that, that, that derived from Wilder Penfield's work, you'd know them in an instant. One is called I'm Okay, You're Okay. Remember that right. book? Oh, sure. That, oh, yeah. and that, that was the beginning of, um, of, of um, a certain form of psychology, learning how to be your own parent, learning how to learn what it is being your own child. And the other book, which became a motion picture, was The Games People Play, also a popular song, right? And um, those two books were derived from Wilder Penfield's work. And the reason was that Penfield was trying to figure out where on the surface of the cerebral cortex was all the mess that was causing people to have these serious, threatening epileptic seizures, which, as you know, is a tremendous amount of electrical current that goes from one hemisphere of the brain to the other hemisphere of the brain, without going into too much neurology here, but, but that's what it was. And he wanted to figure out, and what he did was to see where the lesions were and what the lesions did, he was stimulating various portions of the surface of the of the um, of his patient's uh, cerebral cortex with a very mild current and here's what he found out it's almost like he, cre he he discovered that there was a biological equivalent of what Proust was talking about in um, the research to Tom Perdue right the uh, remembers of things past uh, about memory and what he found out was that people were aware of being on an operating table in an operating room with Dr. Penfield applying current to the surface of their brains, but they were also in a living hallucination. Maybe it was a year earlier, maybe it was 50 years earlier, talking to a relative, tasting a certain kind of food. And when he applied current to various parts of the surface of the cortex, the memories changed. And what this meant was that every single experience that a human being has is somehow stored biologically. It's in the cells. It's a computer in the brain which means that if that memories of your childhood memories of a relationship memories of a traumatic experience obviously are all there so that people are acting from these call them living memories and this so I, want, I don't want to get away from the subject, which is um, Shafika Caragula. This so fascinated Shafika Caragula that she went to Montreal and studied with Penfield. Now, what, what eventually happened, which is the subject of another show, which you've already talked about with uh, Long John Neville, is that the folks in Montreal later became hooked into the CIA's MK Ultra program when the CIA realized, my Lord, what do these guys have? Why does this always oh, lead to that, Bill? Why? It's amazing. <laughs> okay, but anyway, so, so Caragula really got excited about this, and that began her studies into the neurology of the human brain, where memory was, what did this mean? It led her to study Edgar Cayce, and ultimately she became um, the leader of a whole group of people studying what she called higher 
sensory perception. She was evaluating Curlian photography. She was evaluating auras. She was talking about remote viewing, out-of-body experiences. All the way back in the 1960s, she was, in fact, a 20th century kind of incarnation of Madame Blavatsky, also a very famous person who um, was talking about this um, at the turn of the century. So she was encouraging George Norrie, uh, her young relative, to um, explore this. And George did. And um, although he was in the Navy for nine years and then later went into television production, uh, was a news producer, he always had the sense that your intuition will lead you in the right way, that there is logic and there is the voice of reason and there are the folks who are beating down on you, telling you what to do and what not to do. And on the other hand, there is a level of intuition and you had to learn to mediate between the two, balance between the two, but never lose sight of the intuition and sometimes intuition could guide you through conflicting logic. And when the time came, he began doing radio shows on this and became the Nighthawk in St. Louis, which was really a show exploring the paranormal, a lot like your show, having guests exploring the paranormal. And when the time came, uh, his ratings were so high in St. Louis that when the time came, um, Art Bell asked George to sub in for him when Art was having all of his back problems. Remember, he was sick. Right. And finally, when Art decided to retire, um, he really asked George to take over coast to coast. So this has been a fascination that George has had. And of course, we hooked up all the way back in 97, after day after Roswell came out that I wrote with Phil Corso. And after I was Art Bell's guest with Phil Corso, I became George's guest. And then he'd read some of the other books I did, The River Man, The Downing of TWA Flight 800 with Jim Sanders. And uh, we set up a number of shows. And George said, you know, someday you and I will do a book. And then when he came to L.A. to do Coast to Coast, we decided to do this book, uh, Worker in the Light. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730. Or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me continue with that in a moment. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to our old friend Bill Burns, who among his many pursuits is the co-author of Worker in the Light with talk show host George Norrie. If you want to contact us here at the Paracast, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. Visit our website. Check out past episodes of the show. You can do that in iTunes, by the way, also. And you can also check thepowercast.com for a message forums. David, I'm sure you have 12,000 questions to ask of Bill, so please proceed. Well, in hearing about this book and in hearing about uh, Bill always puts a very positive spin on things, I find, and that's great, but I want to reconcile it with what we're seeing in the world today. Bill, given the strife that we see politically 
economically, culturally happening on the planet today, do we look at this and assume that the dark side, as it were, has gained some sort of an upper hand over the light? It, by, by looking at current world affairs, it would appear that, objectively, it would appear that dark, dark forces are at work. What's your thought about that, or am I being paranoid? No, I think I think you're not. I don't think you're being paranoid. I think you're being um, entirely realistic. I would say dark forces are always at work. I don't. I don't think there is. How can I put this? Let's go back to the opening sections of Genesis. Dark forces were at work. Whether again, whether you're talking about this as um, a literal exposition, or having a literal discussion of of the Torah here, or we're having, um, or or the Bible is a metaphor for something else, aliens putting human beings on the planet, or this is a literary reconstruction of um, stories about the evolution of humanity. Regardless of of that, the dark forces were at work from the very beginning. When the, the, uh, the first human beings were walking on the planet, we are told. Um, they had one instruction and one instruction only. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge. And, of course, what did the serpent in the tree say? The serpent in the tree said, oh, come on. Here's the reason you can't eat from the, the tree of knowledge. Because if you ate from the tree of knowledge, you would know exactly what your creator knows. And so, therefore, you're told not to eat because you've got to live in subjugation. Sure enough, the, uh, the two of them eat from the infamous apple, and the next thing they know, they're out of the Garden of Eden, the serpent is cursed, women bear children with extreme pain, um, men work by the sweat of their brow. That was until Ronald Reagan became president, and both of them work by the sweat of their brow. That's a whole other story. Um, I might ask you that in a moment, but I think we get the message. Work by the, work by the sweat of their brow. So, I mean, I mean, to answer David's question, of course you're right, and it's been there since the very beginning. Um, and then the first children, the first basically, as you know, from the Woody Allen movie, remember the movie, uh, Take the Money and Run, when oh, yeah. all of the parents say, yeah, you know what a rotten kid is yeah, Cain was a rotten kid, right? From from the first, you know, from the first children, Cain and Abel. Cain is angry that um, Abel's smoke is going up, and he, he complains, and um, he, he he kills Abel. So so the first two, right? Uh, Cain walks the earth with the mark of Cain. Abel is dead. Adam and Eve have another kid. Seth, thus the human race springs from Seth. So, um, but what I'm trying to get to is there is evil. There is a dark side, even in those early moments of um, the existence of human beings. So how do you apply that to today? I really believe that human beings are caught between a dark side and a right side. That's what I fully believe. And being on the light, working in the light, I think has to be a conscious effort to avoid the dark side. Let's look, to give David his due, let's look at what the dark sides are today. I think that what the dark sides are, if you were to define both extremes of the dark side, mm -hmm. let's say there are two extremes, okay? Sure. Um, and let's apply that to where we are right now in the Middle East. You've got these two extremes. You've got the extreme of Actually, you've got a triangulation of extremes, because I think one extreme is using the other. But let's say you've got the evangelical right, the so-called crusaders. You've got the um, radical Islam, the um, not just al-Qaeda, 
but if you um, were to see the movie uh, The Power of Nightmare, it is um, a radical Islam which is very much like radical evangelical Christianity, um, except there ain't no killing in the radical evangelical Christianity. Um, on both sides, and I could trace this what? right back. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Go ahead. Tell that to the 100,000 Iraqis that have died. Of course there's killing. The radical it's killing, but I don't think. Yeah. The, but I don't think that is the. I don't think that would be the dogma of the evangelical Christians. I would say, we killed a hundred thousand Iraqis or two hundred thousand Iraqis, and that's evil. That's the third element that I'm going to get to. Okay. Um, but what I'm saying is that on that on both sides, you've got evangelical hardline. You could say it's narrow, a narrow set of dogmatic beliefs. Right. Yeah. It's either our way or the highway, basically. Right. On either right. side. Right. Sure. Absolutely. On, uh, on either side. And yeah. and I'll even go so far as to give you a rationale for that. And here's the rationale, because I want to stay with what David's talking about. Here's the rationale. The rationale, I would say, goes all the way back to, I'm saying this is where I see it. If you go back to the Roman occupation of Israel, Judea and Samaria, if you go back to the Roman occupation of, of the Holy Land, right around the birth of Christ, there were a group, an evangelical sect, a very hardline, mystical sect called the Essenes. And Jesus Christ, the historical Jesus, and we know that he was a historical figure because Josephus tells us he was a historical figure along with his brother James. Uh, Jesus belonged to the sect. Who were the Essenes? This is really, I think this is where you see um, a great definition of what's happening today. The Essenes believed that they, and in fact, if we find the Mishkan, if we find the Ark of the Covenant, um, it's probably where the Essenes said it was, but the Essenes believed that because they were the ones who had charge of the Ark of the Covenant, we could talk about that as well, for probably for another show, because that would take another six hours, but the Ark of the Covenant, they believed because they had the charge of it, that the essence of holiness was in their midst. Remember, God tells the Lord tells the the Israelites in the desert after uh, the sin of the golden calf that that they have to build an ark and it will be in the ark that the Lord will reside he will be fire at night smoke in the day and and he lays out the Lord lays out the instructions you can read it in the Bible the exact instructions for the ark of the covenant and the Essenes believed that at the time of the beginning of the common era they were the ones who had charge of, of the ark. Because of that, they believed that, that the spirituality of the Lord resided with them. And so they had to be spiritually and morally clean. And what they meant was that they had to rid themselves of in their lives, not just spiritually, not just in thought, but in thought and in deed, they had to rid themselves of absolutely every trace of anything that could be called evil. And so they did, and they purified themselves in all kinds of rituals, and they became extreme in their beliefs. They became extreme warriors. They were the ones, remember, who were the last holdouts during the Roman occupation of, of, of the Holy Land. And so it is out of that, and we could go into Holy Blood, Holy Grail some other time, but, but it is out of that that you see today's, all the 
right wing, I, I say right wing is political, but all these evangelical movements, both in Judaism, right, the Lubavitcher movement, and in the evangelical Christians, and you also see it in this group that really coalesced, I would say, in the 1930s and 1940s, this group of radical Islam, and are the radical Islamicists, the Islamic Brotherhood in Egypt, grew up looking at, or came into being, looking at the Western dominance, and by the Western dominance, I don't mean the United States per se, I mean England, uh, the United Kingdom, dominating the Saudis, putting um, the Saudis on the throne, creating Saudi Arabia to really administer the British oil interests in the Middle East, um, putting the Hashemite on the throne of, of Jordan. Um, I mean, Jordan really is Palestine. You want to go fight about Palestine, go fight with the, uh, go fight with the Jordanians. That's Palestine. There are more Palestinians in Jordan because there are no Jordanians. They're all Palestinians. It's the Hashemites who rule that. That was a reward for the Hashemites fighting with the British during World War II. So they put the Hashemites on the throne of Jordan. The British created the modern Middle East. And as a reaction to the Western influence, there was this group called the Islamic Brotherhood that basically grew up wanting to impose the law of Sharia on the Muslim country. This is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. If you want to contact us or send a question or messages to our present, future, and past guests, send it to news at theparacast.com. News at theparacast.com. When you visit our website at theparacast.com, you can download past episodes of the show or check out our fantabulous message boards. That's a new adjective for us there. We're talking to Bill Burns, publisher of UFO Magazine, also cool author, along with talk show host George Nori of Coast to Coast AM, of Worker in the Light. And now we're getting an education in world history, the kind of education you don't always get in our educational institutions. So please proceed, Bill. So, so the point that I want to get to is to answer David's specific question. And I know this is a long way to go about it, but, but, uh, but here's the point. So you have these two radical religious groups, each believing the same thing. Each believing that because the, that the presence of holiness is in their communities, that they have to rid themselves of all the trappings of, um, let's say, modern life, corruption, indecency, etc., etc. Now, as these groups became politicized, okay, as these groups became politicized, they mm -hmm. had to deal in a political world. They didn't live, I mean... You don't find a shtetl anymore. I mean, you may go up, uh, you may go up into the Catskills. You may find various kinds of uh, religious communities up in the Catskill Mountains, um, which really try to be very much. I think there's one called Joel up in New York State, which really try to be very much like the shtetls were in Eastern Europe in the 1700s and the 1800s. But, but really, what does that mean to those who haven't followed this? <laughs> well, what does that mean is this. How do you impose a kind of a, a religious lifestyle in which you purify yourself in a political environment 
for the Islamic Brotherhood, they evolved politically to a point where they said that it was okay to kill, okay to assassinate. Remember, um, Muhammad, Islam spread by the sword. That was their religion. And they said it's okay to kill. It's okay to kill other Muslims. First you give them a chance to purify themselves and, and join the Brotherhood. And if they don't, you can go ahead and kill them because that's the best way to ensure a pure community. The evangelical Christians uh, went another route. But, but in both cases, there's the sense of we must purify ourselves. Now, these two groups came into conflict. And how they came into conflict was from a third group. And here's where I would totally agree with David. Here is the essence of evil right there. This is the group of, uh, you know, I'm not going to name names. Well, I will name names. Why not? Name them. I mean, name I mean, you've got people like Dick Cheney, you've got people like the Bush family, who basically came into power, and they're looking at the fact that they came into power on the basis of oil and investment banking. The Bush family's original source of wealth was from investment banking. Um, and you know what investment banking is. They would create mergers, acquisitions, loans, etc., etc. And uh, uh, the, uh, the Bushes, uh, uh, George uh, Prescott Bush, who became a senator, and George Herbert Walker, who married, who married the family, they were working with a person called Fritz Tyson. Fritz Tyson was working with uh, the Dulles brothers, uh, John Foster Dulles, and what they were doing, along with the along with the folks um, at some of our top industries, IBM and Chrysler and what have you, they were basically floating loans to the Nazis, to the Third Reich, rearming the Third Reich. In fact, Prescott Bush was charged under the um, Off the Valiant Properties Act for trading with the enemy. So they, uh, so was Lehman, by the way, Governor Lehman of New York State. They were all funding the Nazis in the 1930s, helping to rearm. So these are not good people. Well, Bill, let's tie this all back into the current situation. I think what you're getting ready to say is that Besides these two religious extremes, we have sort of the real government, which is, or the real powers that be, which are the corporations that are playing out their whole game of profit-taking in this highly charged political environment. Is that what you're getting towards? You're absolutely right, but I would even go a step further, David. Here's what I'd say. It's not just profit-taking. I think that what you have now, and this is what's so scary, because it's getting worse, you put your finger on it. It's this. It is suddenly the corporations have become politicized uh, in that if they put enough money in, they'll get their way. And you know that both parties are really pretty much in yeah. the, um, right? I mean, in the yeah, control absolutely. of the corporation. It, it's corporate feudalism. It is, absolutely. It's exact, it is corporate feudalism. But yes. what we've returned to is, and feudalism is exactly the right word, what we've returned to is a kind of a feudal state, but what is corporate feudalism? What was it called 70 years ago? It was called fascism. That's well, sure. what brought Mussolini yeah. to power. He yes. wasn't a Nazi. He was never a Nazi. He was never a national socialist. That was a whole other kind of a party. Mussolini was brought to power by the corporations, and and it was a, and it was the ultimate corporate state was a fascist state where the corporations rule you, and so literally they control the government. Well, that's this third element because this is kind of the ultimate form of capitalism is 
And, and you could see, and, and I could spin an argument for you right now uh, to argue that it's a good thing. Because who owns the corporations? Why? People own corporations. I own corporations. I've got um, uh, my, my mutual fund, uh, TIA Craft, from when I was a teacher, owns stock. So in reality, because I own that mutual fund, I'm part of the mutual fund, I'm the person who owns the corporation. So I hope you didn't own Enron. No, I don't know what we own, but what I'm saying is it's yeah, a form of corporate democracy where folks like you, myself, David, our listening audience, all of us in some way, shape, or form through a mutual fund, through a K-1, through something, own stock in some corporation, and so we all participate, even though it's like all the way down the line in this. But the fact is the corporations do control the government. That was fascism, and you have a whole group coming to power Say, let's take the gloves off. Let's really exercise this. And, of course, that's exactly what's been happening. You see corporations merging, buying and selling each other's stock on a large scale. You see all the independent media outlets being gobbled up by these large corporations. When I say these large corporations, I mean this in, in terms of uh, the General Electric, which, by the way, is it's like the revenge of Thomas Edison, right? Uh, the General Electric, Paramount. Uh, these large, large, large Viacom corporations gobbling up all the media outlets. That's on the one hand. You see, you're seeing automakers gobble each other up because there's a bottom line issue. I could go into the economics of why this ultimately fails, and that's for a whole other show where Milton Friedman is dead wrong. But the fact is, <laughs> ultimately, ultimately, that's really what you see. And so that's this third element. So Dick Cheney may say he comes out of the world of politics, but in reality, he comes out of the world of corporate America. And in that world, with the Bush family, out of the world of corporate America, much, much more so than politics, what you then see is, how do you get that group? How do you get that group to have political traction? Well, you have that group to get political traction by appealing to the moral core values of a group of people who aren't going to challenge the ethics of those corporations. So they immediately embrace the evangelical right with certain core values. What are the core values? Well, the Supreme Court, and, and again, uh, an object for, uh, for another show, wrongly, I think, uh, ruled that abortion was legal. I think they used the wrong legal reasoning, but the point is, I don't think it's a federal issue. But the fact is that's so they fought that. They, they're, uh, they're saying the government should not be in the abortion business, and that was one major issue. For all three major religions, by the way, in this country, Orthodox Judaism, Catholicism, um, Evangelical Protestantism all believe that abortion is wrong, and um, they're the ones that, uh, you know, so you embrace that. Religious education in schools, I could go down a whole list of core values, and what you eventually find out is that that's why these, these groups embrace the kind of political values that, um, the, that the Cheneys and the Bushes espouse. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. 
Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. This is The Paracast, with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. And if you want to reach us, uh, send your messages to news at thepowercast.com, news at thepowercast.com. When you visit our website, you can download past episodes of the show or visit our message boards. We're talking to Bill Burns, publisher of UFO Magazine, author of many books, including the co-authorship of Worker in the Light with talk show host George Norrie. And now, David well, I'm listening to this, Bill, and my response to, to you, my visceral response is the corporations utilize this leverage of fundamentalist religion to gain control over a certain um, amount of the populace by essentially utilizing the tactics of fear and reliance on ignorance. That's right. Basic, to, to basically take control and to guide the society in a way where just a very small percentage of the powers that be at the top actually end up getting some kind of a benefit out of this, while essentially the, the mass population is effectively left holding the bag. And, you know, when you talk about all of us being shareholders, well, people might go along for some of the ride and pick at the remains of what's left after the vultures at the top eat the big pieces of meat. But essentially, at that point, you've got a society surviving on scraps. And what we know now, at this point, is that given the current rate of expenditure that we're putting into this incredibly dangerous set of ventures, people talk about wanting to do right by their children. Well, effectively, Gene's son, I don't have any kids, but everybody who pays lip service to the children is at a point where their kids... Besides the fact that in 2050 there will be no fish left, besides the fact that the fight for fresh water is really going to be the defining thing of the, of the 21st century, not the fight for oil, we can figure out other sources of energy. But, man, no one's come up with a substitute for water. And that's going to be the real wars of the next 30, 40 years, the battle for access to fresh water. Essentially what these people have done is effectively sell out the future for some kind of a base greed motivation that's happening now. And this brings me back full circle to what I asked you before. It's sort of looking, when you, when, when you take this whole situation and you try to analyze it, it sort of looks like the light is getting sucked into a black hole. Well, and here's where I disagree, probably on, on three basic levels. Even though you're right about, um, yeah, we're getting our, our table scraps, 
we don't believe we're getting our table scraps. I mean, you believe it, I believe it, but <laughs> the fact is, how many people really believe it? I mean, I want to ask you this question, then I'll get sure. to, uh, then I'll get back to, to the other one. I'll sure. just ask you this, Gene. You have been an employer. You have people have worked for you, David. I'm sure you've been in situations. I'm going to throw this right back at you. Uh, sure. I'm sure that you guys have been in situations where where you've either been managers or people have worked for you. And the question is, I'll ask you if you hired somebody to do a specific job, okay? A specific job. Let's say that job you're hiring a security guard for argument's sake. Sure. You, uh, you own a store, a video store. Uh, There's a specific job. Yeah, I've run a couple own... of companies. So, yeah, yeah, this is okay. This okay. is real to me. Sure. You got me? So the only thing that person had to do was do that core job. You say when you hire that person, listen, here's what I want you to do. Here's your job description, and here are your priorities for the job, and you just lay them out. If that person blatantly did not do something, blatantly failed to do one of your priority jobs, what would you do with that person? Let him go. You would you would fire that person. That's right. Well, I agree. Look at okay. So you agree. So now look at what's happened here, and then you tell me why it didn't happen. Look at this. When you elect the president, when you what's the one thing? I mean, this president can can have sexual dalliances. This president can you know can kind of engage in some shady, uh, some some not shady questionable financial dealings in the president's past. But when you elect a president, I would say to you a core top priority, the big thing, is you have to keep this country safe, period. No invasions. No foreign country coming in and invading you. That's what you've got to do. That's your job. And if you don't do it, what do you do then? Well, if you don't do it, you get fired. Well, you tell me why in that situation. We elected a president. His job was to keep the country safe. It was the worst attack on American soil since the British burned Washington. Not only did we turn right around and surrender a whole bunch of constitutional rights, but then you reelected the guy. How did that happen? Maybe you reelected the guy. There's still a controversy yeah, out there yeah. that the Ohio vote in 2004 Maybe was falsified. Maybe there's a about the Ohio vote in 2004, but he's still sitting in the White House. Okay. So, and that makes it. And Gene, what you just said makes a bigger log on the fire. If there's a controversy about the Ohio vote in 2004, this person is still sitting in the White House. So tell me why, and I'll give I, you the answer. I have a theory about that, Bill and Gene. An old political science teacher of mine once told me that no country is more than three meals away from a revolution. And it seems to me like at this point, the American people simply have not missed three meals yet. And that's a simplistic explanation. I don't want to fall back on the old ignorance card because it seems too obvious. It's not ignorance. Can't be ignorance. Everybody knows. Well, Everybody knows. complacence. So what's the what's the origin then? What's the source? You have to know of what complacency. I'm saying. Okay, this is a paradox. And, and, and I'm and and you 
having owned companies and having been, you know, been in charge of companies in the past. I mean, you're from your own experience, but not only you, but every single person who who has either worked for anybody or who has people worked for either him or for her, every single person shares the exact same feeling that I'm sharing with you. If you hire somebody to do a job and that person so screws up and mucks up that the job is totally bollocks, you'd fire the person. Yet you turn right around. And in the wake of 2001, in the wake of September, you basically sit by and clap and applaud while not just your constitutional rights been away, but here's what else happened. That group in power reached into your pocket, deep into your pocket, into your bank account, and they took money out of your pocket and they gave it to the richest 2% of Americans mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to the point where by the year 2020, 95% of American taxpayers will be supporting 5% of American taxpayers, the richest 5%. Now, that's so what the, we did. Yeah, the, so corporate, the corporate feudalists basically use their power and uh, they assert it because it seems like might makes right and i don't agree with that but that seems to be an unfortunate reality in the human condition that perplexes me personally every day you know there's well, one thing i want to just drop back to for one second i know we only have a few minutes left and that is we talk about firing the guy who doesn't do his job and certainly you've done that and i've done that but you might be working in a company that the employees are represented by a union. So you want to fire those people. They have to really do something terrible, probably break the law before the union will allow it. If you have a tenured professor, he can right. be a totally idiotic. He can be a total moron in class, but he gets tenure and you can't get rid of him. That's true, but there is no union protecting the president. Of course not. There isn't, and the fact is presidents don't have tenure. They have four-year contracts, and the fact is we renewed a four-year contract for another four years, and even if there's controversy about the legality of that review of that renewal, nobody piped up. See, my suggestion to you is that there's a whole other element which has come into play, which you're aware of, but, but you're not applying to the situation and that is one of the first things that this corporate group did was you find complicit members of the media and you take them over you basically say what can we offer you what can we do for you in this new world order that will literally have you not just um, giving us the benefit of the doubt but spinning our story so you go to a company like Fox and you say listen we're going to open doors to you that you could probably never open for yourself. And you basically help create a network that literally, as we saw from um, a number of documentaries uh, from a few years ago, uh, the White House sends the briefing points and Fox News spins the briefing points. And that's sure, what Bill, you get. But, but we're back to ignorance. You're, you're now relying on the ignorance of the masses to look at one source of information, accept it as fact, not question it, and, and here's the point, not just ignorance, laziness. You're talking about a population that has been placated into not asking the questions and not doing any kind of real effort to find what the truth is. People seem to prefer to have their truth pre-chewed, pre-digested, pre-packaged if it involves effort. 
if they actually have to work to understand what the true nature of reality is, they don't want to do it. And I have to tell you, I believe this is why we have seen in our civilization the, the rise of organized religion. It's the packaging yes, of truth. I was yeah. absolutely going there myself. Bill, just, just we have only about two minutes left, so why don't we just try to summarize that? Go ahead. Okay. I'm sorry it's only two minutes, but that's how it goes. Okay, you've gotten us back to work with the light, which is one of the basic premises of working light, and that is that the rise of organized institutions, like organized religion, has mm-hmm. done the very thing. They've given people, they've, they've said, in exchange for your having to wield responsibility in this unbelievable sense that you have, which is you can control the future. If you want it, you can have it. In exchange for that terrible responsibility of being in charge of your own future, we're going to take that responsibility away from you and give you this happy complacency. So don't worry about this. Be complacent. Do what we say. Make sure you show up on Sunday mornings. Make sure you show up on Fridays. Make sure you show up. Make sure you you give us 10% of everything you own. Make sure you follow the rules. We'll make the rules simple. And you know what? You have no longer any responsibility for doing good or evil. No longer any responsibility for right or wrong. Because just do what we say, and it's right. The choice has now been taken away from you. Don't worry. We control all. David, you're dead right. That's exactly what's happened. But it didn't happen in, in this century. It happened no. thousands of thousands years of years. Absolutely. That's the way to end it, but it's only a beginning. We've been talking to Bill Burns, who is publisher of UFO Magazine and author with talk show host right. George Nori of Worker and the Light, which you can get at Amazon Books. Get it. Here's Tell- where to get Worker and the Light. www.ufomag.com. Go to UFO Magazine, ufomag.com. Go there. You'll see the book. Click on it. Buy the book. I guarantee you, you will be illuminated. Thank you very much, Bill Burns, for joining us on the PowerCast. Thanks, Bill. Thanks. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com right now. Click on the C-Crane Sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never
never know what's going to happen next. As you see, ladies and gentlemen, politics always enters into it. And we're not going to give up discussion of politics because some people don't want their conservative liberal, moderate beliefs, whatever, upset. We are equal opportunity offenders. Open your minds, listeners. Open your minds. Forget the old ways of thinking. Open your minds. It's a new millennium. Let's make some new models of thought. Let's make some new methods of analysis, Gene. I mean, actually, while we were talking with Bill, there was something I wanted to bring up to him that I didn't get a chance to. Recently, in the New York Times Sunday Magazine, there was a fascinating cover story on pachyderms, on elephants, and the fact that elephants not only have a complex methodology of thinking, but they even mourn their dead. So I start to wonder about this idea that humans are absolutely unique in their ability, in certain cultural abilities, because it looks like other animals, like elephants, have complex social interactions that very closely mimic what humans do. And that's all also a very complicated subject and we're going to explore other creatures even including such things as bigfoot on future episodes of the paracast the paracast with gene steinberg and david biedney is a production of making the impossible incorporated join us next week for a new adventure in the paracast